Hello and welcome to the Conflict Skills Podcast. I'm your host, professional mediator, Simon Good. In today's episode of the podcast, I'll be talking about the topic of how to deal with a defensive employee. This is particularly suited, I think, for people who are in leadership roles like managers and team leaders, but also for people who work in HR or they're dealing with staff at different levels and they might encounter resistance. So I'll talk about a number of different strategies that you can use, but particularly in terms of communication with that person, how to avoid inadvertent criticism. I'll explain some of the reasons why that might be what is pushing their buttons and how to still hold on to boundaries and be assertive and firm as needed, but to hopefully minimize the resistance that you encounter along the way. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to get in touch, if you have a question or a comment, feedback about the podcast, you can shoot me an email. It's podcast at simongood.com. And the spelling of that is S-I-M-O-N-G-O-O-D-E.com. Let's get into the topic. It's a very common question that comes up during conflict resolution training is dealing with defensiveness. A lot of people struggle with this on the client side. You know, you're explaining to a client why um, the fact that they've uh, put an electronic device through their washing machine with their clothes might explain the fact that it's malfunctioning and therefore potentially this isn't as valid a claim on the warranty as they think that it is. Uh, But particularly with staff, I think defensiveness is something that's very common And unfortunately, I think a lot of workplaces are primed for this simply because they've become such high-pressure situations, both in a practical sense, people rush from meeting to meeting and there's less and less time to prepare, and certainly in terms of resetting or finding a few minutes to take a few deep breaths or get something to eat, these little breaks that used to occur during the day and gave people a chance to reset and recalibrate, I think are becoming rarer and rarer. And so what that means is that the stress that people experience just because of the busyness or because of the conflict that's coming about as a result of the busyness and people's nerves becoming more frayed and competing KPIs and natural interest conflict, which is arising as a result, all of this means that people are more sensitive, they're more likely to react, they're not as resilient. What effectively is happening here is that they're not seeing the context and the influence of the context when someone does something. They assume that if someone does something negative, that therefore they meant it and they take it personally as a result. This is natural as we become more and more stressed, our brain just has to make quicker and quicker and more general and more general assumptions about what's going on. And effectively, at some stage, we lose it. Our boss tells us something, you know, you might experience this when you're talking to a staff member and it's like they just see red. They can't hear what you're saying to them anymore. They just go on this sort of rant almost about why it's not their fault and there are all these reasons why this was an unrealistic expectation or how dare you accuse them of this and this and this. And in the moment, it's almost hard to get your head around exactly what's happened, this sudden escalation. But I think it's simply a result of the fact that workplaces are becoming more and more wound up and tightly pressurized. And that means that these negative emotions are starting to spill out. Dealing with a defensive employee, although it can be a little bit confusing as to what's going on, it certainly often feels really stressful. You might feel like you're walking on eggshells when you're communicating with them. And the challenge is finding the right balance between being assertive and holding people accountable for expectations. They're doing something wrong. Well, I suppose there's 
to some extent an understandable layer there. There's human factors. People will make mistakes, but what level of mistake is tolerable and what do you expect the staff member to be doing to improve their performance versus what's just completely outside of their control. These are all really difficult dilemmas to navigate. And so when you're dealing with a defensive employee and you're also trying to hold them accountable for their work, that of course is a challenging situation to manage. Whereas with most staff, you can probably just say to them, can you make sure this is done by this date? Is that, is that, is that going to work for you? And it's yes or no, or you can negotiate some, something else. But when you ask a defensive employee to do something similar, all of a sudden it becomes a myriad of excuses or accusations of how you're treating them unfairly or whatever else it might be. So the first thing I think to keep in mind when you're dealing with this type of a defensive staff member is looking after yourself longer term. That will be making sure that you do self-care after work, uh, go to the gym, go for a walk around the block with your dog, um, take a few deep breaths in the car, in the garage before you walk into the house. Because what you don't want to do is yell at your kids, create an extra layer of stress for yourself. And then all of this becomes a really negative spiral that you, you've been caught up in. Um, even in terms of the person themselves, you might think about what do you need to do to look after yourself? Do you need to debrief with someone or write down your thoughts or draft an email, even if you're not going to send it, set up a meeting for tomorrow morning? There may be practical things that you just need to do. And what that will mean is that it minimizes the impact on yourself and you know your family and other people around you. During conversations though, what often happens when somebody becomes defensive is that it triggers one of two things in the other person. That is often defensiveness, like defensiveness causes more defensiveness on the other side, or it actually invites criticism. So if you're talking to a staff member and asking them, you know, where's this project up to and they lose it and accuse you of micromanaging them or whatever, what might happen is that you become defensive. I am not micromanaging you. How dare you accuse me of that? Don't you know how much support I'm giving you? It's more than anybody else who works in the team. It sort of brings this out of us if our buttons get pushed and we become triggered in the moment. And that's often when we're being accused of something unfairly, then we become defensive. But the other thing that sometimes happens is that it almost brings out criticism from us particularly when the other person's denying accountability or denying responsibility. None of this is my fault. I'm just the poor victim here. Well, the temptation is for you to come in and say, look, you know, I know that you had to deal with material shortages or staff shortages or the weather that day or the fact that the client was difficult to work with. At the same time, these are situations that are going to keep coming up moving forward. And if our, gr our work grinds to a halt every single time, that's not something that's tenable. So what I am looking to you for is to think some options up or develop a plan for how you can manage this differently. So it's kind of saying, yes, I understand that there's this context and there are these reasons why, but I still expect you to be doing this. If we don't do that, what happens is that we say, that's not true. There were things that you could have done. You could have done this or this or this or this. And then, of course, what that tends to do is to feel like criticism for the person that we're dealing with. So these are some of the reasons why then it's important for you to deliberately take actions to regulate your own nervous system and stay calm. The two techniques that I often suggest when I'm doing conflict resolution training is a breathing technique, breathing in and out and counting to five. So count to five, breathing in, count to five, breathing out. Use your nose rather than your mouth and really try to 
more and more fully exhale each breath. So emptying your lungs, emptying your lungs a little bit more. What this does is it slows down our heart rate, relaxes our body physically, and therefore it sends signals to our brain that this is a safe and contained space and therefore helps us to act in a more composed way. The other technique that often works to stay calm is mindfulness, just shifting your focus to something that's happening in the present. Wiggle your shoes, notice the temperature of the air, notice the pattern on their tie if the person's standing there staring at you. Just turn your attention to the senses. What that does is it focuses our attention in the present and on a more fine grain level of detail, which then stops us from jumping to those high level conclusions about this is a threat and I need to defend myself. You know, whether this is embarrassing or someone's accusing us of something, our brain sort of reacts to this and it can almost be like a, a helpful guide that might be a little bit dumb and blind at times. I mean, after all, the brain's sitting inside an empty black box, right? And the only sensory information it gets is coming in through sight, touch, sound, etc. Which means that sometimes it makes mistakes and it thinks that a situation's more threatening than it really is. We're primed to look for things like rejection or social embarrassment as really potentially risky. We don't want to be excluded from our tribe if that's important for us to share food with, you know, it's a, it's literally we will die if, if people reject us. And so this is the sort of ancestral brain that we're stuck with through this process of evolving in, in tribes is that we're highly primed for things like standing out in front of a group. So standing up and giving a presentation often feels really overwhelming or conflict at work, talking to someone about a problem with something they've done. Of course, that's a situation historically that might have been really risky. I mean, telling someone they haven't hunted enough food for the tribe, they, they might decide to hunt you instead. So for you, turning your focus back to your senses, that, that version of mindfulness, just paying attention to those things in the present, it stops our brain from jumping to that high level assumption of threat, slows down our thinking and adding that fine level of detail often means that we respond in a much more nuanced way. And again, that helps us to feel more calm and confident. So then let's think about how do we communicate with this person who's pretty regularly becoming defensive. We've identified often this, this is a pattern of behavior. And so one of the things that you should consider is what's pushing their buttons? Is it situations where they get feedback? And if so, are there particular times or contexts that cause them to become defensive? Is it when it's done publicly, for example, or, you know, somebody interrupts them during a meeting, that's a situation that they tend to just continue to speak louder and louder. Is it when they're dealing with high-level clients who they may want to impress? Is it dealing with the apprentices and the more junior staff? Just start starting to think about, well, how is context influencing this? And what about other people? Sometimes there's other people within the organization that we might be able to leverage and use as well, like having a conversation with other team members in the room might mean that you normalize the fact that you're giving feedback to all of them. It's not just singling this person out. Whereas for other people, that might be something that really causes them to react. They would dread being given feedback in a group, even if the even if you've just also done the same thing to everybody else. So for that type of person, I'll just shift to doing one-on-one -on -one meetings to give that type of feedback moving forward. So sometimes there's just contextual changes that you can make. The most common thing that causes people to become defensive though is that they interpret you as criticizing them. Now this is often inadvertent. You don't mean to criticize them, but that's the way that they take it. 
And the challenge here is that that is really in the eye of the perceiver. You can do your best to use the right language and phrases, and certainly your intentions can be, I'm really only giving them feedback for their own good. I want them to improve in their career, and I know these things are holding them back. It's irrelevant. (laughs) From them, what they're doing is making their own meaning about the words and the body language and the facial expressions and the, the tone that you use, and you're not in control of that. So that's something that's important simply to acknowledge is that you can minimize the chance of the person becoming defensive, but it's not going to be something that you can control. The most fruitful area to focus on, though, in my experience is minimizing the chance that they think that you're criticizing them. It's an incredibly common mistake when I'm doing workplace mediations. Again and again, I see these patterns of communication where often people are both criticizing each other. And it's not what they're trying to do. And if I said to them, why are you so critical? They would very likely say, I'm not critical. What the heck are you talking about? And so what I'm going to do now is to go through some of the most common ways of communicating that I've observed that tend to come across as criticism, even if it's not something that we deliberately do. So the first is, I think a lot of team leaders and managers ask the wrong questions. A very common mistake that people make is to ask a question like, why? Why did you do that? Of course, as soon as someone asks us, why did we do that? Our natural response is to become defensive because, and then we explain all of the outside reasons why we did it and how it's not really our fault or the fact that we actually were making a good decision back then and now there's been new information that comes to mind and and therefore defending our original course of action. That why did you do that in my experience just causes people to become more and more stuck. They see the situation in the same black and white way that they're viewing it right now. It's not my fault, it is my fault. Whereas in reality, there's a lot more nuance involved. So the better way to frame those types of questions is to say, you know, what were you thinking at the time or how have things changed since then? What would you do differently this time around? It's just a very neutral way of saying, you know, what led to that decision? You know, I'm not implying that I agree or disagree. Like I'm curious to know what was going on (laughs) because that's going to be helpful information to have if we're going to prevent that same problem from coming up again, right? But that subtle difference, instead of saying, why'd you do that? Like, what were you thinking at the time? Or what led you to decide to make that decision? Or I know there are a number of different factors that you were probably considering at the time, what was going through your mind back then. Just normalizing the fact that, hey, you know, we all made a mistake and this wasn't the right call. And can you fill me in on what's going on? And maybe we need to solve this problem, but at least this is a learning opportunity. The other thing I think that most people not most, some people tend to do in terms of the questions that they ask is they ask too many closed-ended questions in a row. And what happens is that this starts to feel like an interrogation. Did you finish that project? Or have you emailed them yet? Or have they written back? Like these types of things, it's sort of increasing this level of scrutiny and it feels like a, an interrogation where one of the tactics that people use is pressure. And so what often happens as a result is that people respond to that pressure and they react. So a better way to phrase all of those questions is it's similar. It's more neutral. What's the status of the project? Where is it up to? How's it going? These types of things. Again, you can still be very firm. Could you give me an update on the status of the project by the end of today? Uh, But you're not saying, is it finished? Because if it's not finished, then the other person has to immediately say no and then probably become defensive as to the reasons why. Whereas if you say, is it it still going or 
Is it concluded yet or are you still working on it? It's a more neutral phrasing, you know, is it this or this? I'm not implying that one or the other is what I'm expecting here. Of course, in terms of the context, our expectations are still clear, but what we don't want to do is to ram it home to someone who's about to tell us that they've failed. The next mistake I think a lot of people make in terms of leadership is too many checks or too many offers to help. Are you okay? Are you sure you're okay? Is it under control? Do you need any help? All right, I'm just letting you know that if you do need help, this is the last deadline to get that in for the other approvals within the other teams or whatever. It's like, yes, I've got it. (laughs) Of course, if the person thinks that you don't have any faith in them, they're going to feel like they need to prove themselves. And what that often means is that that defensiveness comes up not because they're arrogant and proud and think that they're killing it or whatever. It's much more about the fact that they worry that you think that they're not good enough or that you're giving that message to other staff that they're not good enough and then that invites that defensiveness. So too many checks or too many offers for help. Are you sure you don't need any more help? I'd be happy to help out. Are you sure? Da, 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 da. Yes, I've got it. It's like back off. That level of pressure often is something that really causes that inadvertent escalation. The next mistake some people make in the workplace in dealing with communication is expressing too much emotion. This is something where it's a subjective thing. We've all got a different idea around expressing emotion in the workplace. I have spoken, though, over the past few episodes of the podcast about just how much Lisa Feldman Barrett's work has resonated with me in her book about how emotions are made, really do emphasize the fact that research at the moment on the brain is indicating that what emotions effectively are are signals. They're like motivators for action. They're just part of the way that our brain gets us ready to respond to whatever it's interpreting as the current thing that we're needing. And so if it's anger or we feel love and warmth or whatever it is to someone else, that's just a signal that our brain is giving us about that person. And we're dealing with this event brain that has evolved very slowly in a different context than, you know, a modern office building or a modern day construction site, tribal life, right? And so in terms of the types of thing that are, I guess, important back then, we needed to know who to hang out with and who not to hang out with. So these emotions like disgust or anger or frustration or whatever it was, was important information for us. Maybe feeling exhausted meant that I shouldn't go out on the hunt because I might not have the energy to make it back. Maybe feeling frustrated by this person was a sign that I shouldn't follow them and put them in a leadership role. I should look to somebody else for guidance or other people to be part of my tribe. And the challenge is that when we're in workplace communication, we don't get to choose the people who we're working with most of the time, which means that we're having these emotions like frustration So that's a signal that our brain's telling us about this person or just how we resonate with this person really. And it's like, okay, great. Well, how useful is that? You know, I still have to deal with them. They're still the HR manager or they're still working in finance or they're still this important client that I need to deal with. So I I guess I would just like to encourage people to consider just what these emotions are and like they're important to notice. And sometimes I, I even literally say these days, you know, thanks for that brain. I get it. You know, standing up and giving this training workshop that I'm about to do something that has historically been pretty risky. So you're inviting me to feel anxious because of course that's something that's socially uncomfortable. 
uh, that's not going to be helpful for me. <laughs> What's going to be helpful is going through my notes or doing a quick meditation or practicing and rehearsing in a calm way or going and talking to people in the room so I have a bit of rapport. It's just almost like redirecting and saying, yep, I get it. Thanks for that signal. But that's probably not the most helpful thing to focus on right now. And so when people express emotion, particularly in workplace communication, I do sometimes wonder about it. I think in authentic communication, probably there's an argument that emotions are present and so therefore expressing them is authentic and genuine and real or something. But on the other hand, if both of us are just having these emotions going on as signals that our brain are giving us, I think maybe there's a responsibility for us to choose which emotions to convey. So let's say you've got a staff member who's not doing their paperwork right. They keep making mistakes. And you say something like, I'm just so frustrated that you keep making these mistakes. This is the fourth time that we've met and I've gone over this. You should know this by now. And I often wonder what effect does that have then on the staff member? And if they become defensive, I think it's pretty easy to assume that that has accidentally come across as criticism. I mean, whether or not it was meant that way, it, it probably was to some extent, but potentially not wanting to get into a debate or an argument about it. The next mistake I often see people mistake is overreacting. I caught myself doing this this morning with my son, just yelling like, are you serious? After I realized that he'd just been watching TV secretly instead of putting his shoes on for school. I mean, in hindsight, almost immediately I realized that that probably wasn't the ideal way to respond. I wish I'd done it with compassion. You can still be firm. You can still be assertive. You can still put consequences in place, but you don't need to add all of the drama. I think that probably goes along with expressing too much emotion is just overreacting to the situation. In hindsight, it's a minor thing. We're five or 10 minutes late to school. It's not the end of the world. Most of the things that I'm worried about are just things my brain has historically needed to worry about, like the embarrassment of showing up to the office and explaining that I've been late to get my son ready or whatever it is. I mean, who cares? I'm sure the office gets 20 families every day that do this and we're not normally the kind of family that does it. And at the end of the day, it just doesn't matter what an office lady thinks about me, right? I'm, a, I'm as good or a bad a parent as I am and whatever my failings or strengths are, that office lady's probably not got an accurate idea of it but I might overreact and yell at my son because I'm avoiding the embarrassment of going up and explaining to the office lady, right? And when we can understand that this is what's happening, it helps us to just keep things in perspective. So I wish I'd said something like, buddy, you have to turn the TV off right now. And I probably in hindsight should have just stood there until he turned it off rather than just yelling from the next room, can you turn it off now? I wish I'd said something like, I know it's tempting and it's easy to get distracted and lose track of time, but it's your responsibility to manage getting ready for school. And then I could decide, do I need to punish him or give him a warning or whatever? I mean, I can still be very firm and deal with the situation as best I can in the moment, but that overreaction and often it comes along with adding emotions, probably not something that helps. And so if you're the kind of person that lets your emotions slip or overreacts to small things, even if it's in the very, very short term, like someone first tells you about something and you say, oh, for F's sake, that's the last thing I need today. You know, you probably get defensiveness then. Well, it's not my fault. I only just found out about it myself. The final mistake I think people often make that invites defensiveness, and it also is connected to accidental criticism, is having unclear or unrealistic expectations. 
If a staff member gets the sense that you don't appreciate how difficult a task is or the other reasons why they might have found this challenging or failed, then they're going to keep reminding you again and again and again and again. And so if you're noticing that def defensiveness is a little bit like Groundhog Day, what I often suggest is to do a long type of summary so that they know that they've you've heard it. They feel understood when you express that and empathize with what they've shared and then redirecting the conversation towards your expectations. So what sometimes happens is managers say, is the project fixed, uh, finished? And the staff member says something like, no, well, we've had, you know, staff off sick, you know, what do you expect me to do? And if you say something like, mate, it's your problem, you need to fig figure it out or whatever it is, then of course they're going to think that we're not appreciating the fact that they've had the staff members off sick and then they might just repeat it. Well, what do you expect me to do? I've only had two people here and we've had our key engineer off or the key designer off or whatever. The better way to do it is to acknowledge what they've said, acknowledge that context, acknowledge those reasons. Okay, mate, look, how often is have you had staff off? What's it looked like over the past few weeks? Okay, so it hasn't just been Dave, you've actually had a few of the other staff off too. Um, are they all back now or where's it up to at the moment? Okay, so instead of making those assumptions and sticking with what are potentially perceived as unclear or unrealistic expectations, we first gather information. So we clarify first, what is their excuse? What are they talking about? And then we acknowledge it. Okay, mate, so look, it's probably felt to you then like it was fair enough to... Um, push that deadline back. I don't think it's something that we've discussed, but yeah, thanks for filling me in on where your head was at. On my end, unless that's something that you've emailed me about or let me know, then I'm still expecting it to come in by that date. Uh, I'm not sort of making changes, anticipating how your team are traveling. So could you maybe have a think about where it will be up to in terms of a realistic ETA and then let me know by the end of today if we need to, maybe we could organize a meeting to touch base and make sure we're on the same page tomorrow. How does that sit with you? So I was just saying, you know, like, yep, I get it. This is the context. These are the reasons why you've got this stuff issue that's going on. Tell me a bit more about it so we can make sure we're on the same page at the same time. This is what I need from you or this is what I expect from you. In that way, it's like, yeah, I get it. There's contextual factors. I'm not minimizing them. I'm not dismissing them. They're important and they're real. At the same time, this is what I need from you. Is there any reason why that can't happen? And if they say, no, I'm not going to be able to do it, then you'll need to decide, well, is this a situation where you're willing to be accommodating and flexible? Or are you going to stick to your guns and just be assertive? Or is there some middle ground that you can reach by compromising? Or potentially this is a situation where you could collaborate. Well, look, I'm happy to talk about adjusting the timelines, but maybe we could think through then the milestones and finishing that section of the building earlier, which would mean that I can get the next team in and started or whatever it is. So thinking through the context, just in that strategic lens, like I've talked about in previous episodes of the podcast, rather than that inadvertent knee-jerk reaction, which probably wants to prove that they're wrong if they're being unfair and kind of a jerk and trying to pass the buck and skirt out on their responsibility. It's something that really does upset me and probably you as well. And so it's just pausing and thinking about, well, what are the priorities and what's most important here, which helps us then to take more of a strategic response. So I hope that that's helpful for you, thinking about some of the ideas for dealing with a staff member who's very defensive 
Um, if you've got questions or a different topic that you'd like me to discuss on a future episode of the podcast, again, you can send me an email. It's podcast at simongood.com. If you'd like to support the podcast, the best thing that you can do is just to hit like on Spotify or Apple or whichever the podcasting platform is that you use. I would be incredibly grateful if you could write a written review and give us five stars. That would be exceptional, but I know I don't usually like to do that type of stuff, so I'm guessing that you probably find all of that very annoying too but for a new type of podcast like this it it really does help us to grow Uh, the other thing I just wanted to let you know as well is that I've started a YouTube channel so you can just search for at Simon Good on YouTube or YouTube at Simon Good or whatever that's the channel sort of ID Um, I've just started to take it a little bit more serious and upload resources particularly around workplace conflict resolution skills So I'm going to look at things like de-escalation or how to run a workplace mediation or managing performance management conversations with staff, that type of thing. So again, if you've got a topic or a case study or a particularly difficult person that you're dealing with at your work, uh, let me know and maybe I could also make a video about it and that could even be a resource that you could use with your team in your workplace. Thank you so much for listening. I hope that that's been helpful for you. Hopefully see you in a future episode of the podcast. Bye for now.